Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Increment 67. And we're going to be going to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. We're beginning with an announcement today of both great joy and sadness. And that is that the this morning we're recording on Tuesday before our Wednesday message on the 21st. This morning at 9 a.m., one of our beloved brothers went home to be with the Lord. He stepped out of this mortal body and stepped right into the splendor of future world where all the angels worship his Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of Paul Powell from Ohio. Paul and Ginny have been a member of our phalanx for many years, and they are both 95 years of age. I got to speak with them last week. It was one of the most uplifting, upbuilding conversations I've had, really, in the course of my whole ministry. They are a wonderful couple, and so are deepest condolences and encouragement and hope and prayer that the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ himself personally will comfort Jenny at this time is from all of us here. We love you, Jenny, and we're grateful. Paul was the man whom I used to refer to as my dad because the first time I saw him in the audience, I literally thought I saw my father out in the audience. He had a sort of a resemblance to my dad, so... In fact, in our last conversation, I called him dad, and um, I called actually Ginny last week because I thought he was going to be separate from her in hospice, but she said, would you like to talk to him? And she handed the phone to me, and he just literally was a time of laughter and crying. I laughed and I cried while talking with him. He had a tremendous sense of humor. He said he only had one regret and that was that he didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ until a little later on in life. But I said to him, and I think everyone who knows him agrees, I said, the Lord took you like a slingshot and just held back a little longer so that when he let you fly, you really flew, and he did. And I'm very grateful to have known him. Can't wait to see him. And Jenny, you'll see him very soon. The reunion will be spectacular. As we record this message, it's a little rainy and gray outside, but where he is, it's splendid, and there's a light that embarrasses our son, and it's the son, God's son, Jesus Christ. And so, also, our comfort and encouragement extends to all of those in the potter's shed who knew and loved Paul and Memories abound. Even now as I'm talking, I recall the times in the upper room at the farm where we gathered together and got to know Paul for the first time. So we're very grateful for a a life well-lived and for a couple. We used to call it corporate witness and still do. They were a remarkable corporate witness together. And Paul said even in our last conversation that At age 95, in their last times together, he was saying how God was renewing the joy and just the discovery and the happiness that they had together right in the first moments of their marriage. And wow, how remarkable it was to hear that. You could tell that, and he also said to me, then I feel as if Jesus is embracing me right now and embracing us and indeed he is and was and so once again grateful for a life not only well lived but one that's given me great incentive in the ministry I always say to people individually and there are many I could say this about if it were you alone for whom I was sent here to labor in the word for over 40 years it would have been worth it So see you soon, Paul. Salutes from the heart. We see Jesus, and I'm a little jealous because Paul sees him a lot better than we do. And the message today will be piston anta to poisante auton. Jesus 
was faithful to him who appointed him. Now we're going to have some things in this message that coalesce from messages long ago and from series past, like especially reading Romans with the light on, and oddly enough, better call Paul. They'll come together and coalesce in this message in Hebrews on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which I find to be really a hallmark thing to consider in the scriptures. Now, I debated whether or not to do this. I think I will do this today. I've developed a translation so that you don't get lost in all I say, like the song says. I want to read the translation we have for Hebrews, the first two chapters. It's not perfect because it's my translation, but it is a working translation. So, Father, now, as we present your throne of grace, we pray that you will teach us by your spirit. And so we entrust our spirit to you to be taught by your spirit, to be led into all truth, to be upbuilt, to uplifted and built up in the holy faith so that we can keep ourselves in the love of God in a way that we haven't even done so before. We pray again that you'll be with Jenny Powell. She'll experience your embrace must be so difficult to be with a partner so long and then all of a sudden suddenly as she said this morning it seems so unreal and no longer to be there but we thank you father that we have the assurance of a glorious and grand reunion and of the reconciling of all things in the heavens and earth and the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus with that confidence we approach your word So make our spirits receptive and make the insights that come forth from your throne, the crystal river that flows from your throne, may it bring crystal clear insights that reveal your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Here it is, Hebrews 1 and 2, and we'll go right into 3 for our message today. My translation so far, and I'll read it without scripture references. In many parts and in various ways long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things. Note the word appointed. Through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he leads his firstborn into future world, he says, Worship him, all of God's angels. And with regard to the angels, he says, he who makes his angels winds and his ministers of fiery flame. But to the sun, he says, your throne, God, is for the age of the ages and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a cloak you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. And to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet? 
Aren't all the angels ministering spirits sent for service and support of those who are destined to inherit salvation? On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Which very salvation, having begun to be articulated through the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him, God himself testifying. At the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. For you see, it is not to angels that God has subjected future world about which we are speaking. Now somewhere, someone solemnly testifies saying, what is man? that you remember him, or the Son of Man, that you are concerned for him. You made him inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. As things now stand, we are not yet seeing everything in subjection to him but we see Jesus who was made inferior to the angels for a little while so that by the grace of God and far from God he would taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death for in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory It was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, complete, through suffering. For both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children that you have given me. Children that God has given me. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same, so that through experiencing death, he would render hors de combat, the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death for he has surely not taken hold of or assumed the nature of angels but he took hold of and assumed the seed of Abraham for the same reason he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest, archpriest, that is, in things pertaining to God, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Now this flows beautifully and elegantly right into Hebrews 3, 1, where our message will be from today. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest 
of our, confess of our confession, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And that's where we have today's Greek phrase, faithful to him who appointed him. Now, this message is going to be an extraordinarily different kind of message in one sense because it's going to blend a lot of things we've studied before. And I won't always identify exactly where those things have come from in terms of series, but I think you're going to see something today about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which I have not spoken of before. It has to do with your present situation and mine in this life. Now, Jesus' faithfulness took him through suffering and death to glory and honor. We came to our consideration of Hebrews, our current study of Hebrews, through Better Call Paul, a series on Paul's epistles. And that included a fairly close look at Galatians. And then a study of Romans called Reading Romans with the Light On. That was followed by a 10-part series, which is still kind of an open series, called Romans, colon, Doctrines, or Romans Doctrines, colon, Justification. Among the salient motifs of that trio of studies was the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Representative by, or represented, we could say, by genitive phrases. Genitive being G-E-N-I-T-I-V-E. It's a case in the Greek syntax. We'll explain it a little bit. Genitive phrases like pistios Christou, or pistis Christou, the faith of Christ, Galatians 2.16, for example, or en piste zo te tu huion tu theou, which is the faith of the Son of God, or in the faith or by the faith of the Son of God. Genitive, then, as a case in Greek syntax, means that a word or a phrase denotes possession, description, or relationship. A subjective genitive. Now, this is the, where the, the real point is. A subjective genitive means that a word or a phrase speaks of the subject doing the action. For example, a subjective genitive in the phrase, the faith of Christ, which appears many times in the scriptures means that the faith is not possessed by any person toward Christ, but by Christ himself. It is his own faithfulness. Like he said in our passage we just read, I will trust in you, Jesus says to the Father. That's his faith. So a subjective genitive description or translation of the phrase, the faith of Christ, would be Christ's own faith or his, what I like to call, faith, fidelity, and faithfulness. The person toward Christ would be an objective genitive. In other words, an objective genitive, the faith of Christ, would be my personal faith or your personal faith directed toward Christ. So a subjective genitive in the phrase, the faith of Christ, means that the faith is not possessed by any person toward Christ, but by Christ himself. He's the subject of the faith. It's Christ's fidelity, faith, and faithfulness. The objective genitive interpretation of pistios Christu would be that the faith belonged to someone and was directed to Christ as its object. In the objective genitive, the faith or faithfulness belongs to a human doer toward Christ. 
we found that the subjective genitive in cases that spoke of the faith of Christ rendered the meaning to be the faith or the faithfulness of Christ rather than the objective genitive, our faith in him. In the subjective genitive, Jesus is both the subject who possesses the faith, the faithfulness and the fidelity, and the one who acts faithfully or obediently to the one who appointed him. He does so for our benefit. Jesus acts in faithfulness for our benefit. We don't do him any favors by our faithfulness. He does us the biggest favor by his faithfulness. So he does so for our benefit. And for our benefit, by our benefit, I mean the benefit of us all. That's going to be a key word in our message today too, all. John 1.16, we have all received benefit from his fullness, his pleroma. Grace after grace, it says, John 1.16. But there's another kind of genitive, and I haven't talked too much about this in regards to pistu or pistis Christu, even though I have talked about it with the phrase, the love of God. And that is called the plenary genitive, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. We can do it abbreviatingly as plengen, P-L-E-N-G-E-N, or hyphen G-E-N. The plenary genitive means that both, both the objective and subjective genitive are signified by a given genitive noun or phrase. I've suspected this for some years now, and I haven't said it really until now because I'm a little more convinced about it. I've suspected that the plenary genitive could be used in those phrases that have to do with the faith of Christ as it is with the phrase, the love of God. For example, Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. 1 John 2.5, the love of God is perfected in those, him or her, who keeps the word. Or the love of Christ. Romans 8.35, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Ephesians 3.17. These are genitive phrases, the love of God, the love of Christ. The plenary genitive, plengen for short, takes in both the objective and the subjective senses of the phrase. So the love of God, he agape tu theu, he agape tu the love of God means the love of God for us and our love for God, all rolled up into one gift from God to us. Both of which are contained, therefore, in God's gift to us of his own love. The same pertains to the phrase, the love of Christ. Tes agapes to Christu. You'll see all this in print in the Greek text and the Greek transliteration. In the case of the love of Christ, both the love that Christ has for God, for people, and for me, we could say, and you, and the love that I or you, have for Christ is intended, both. To know the love of Christ, then, is not just to know his love for me, which is wonderful, but it is also to know an experience that I could never have had alone and without the Spirit, my love for Jesus Christ. And so, the love of Christ has a multi-tiered and very textured meaning. So that means, again, to come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3.19 is to come to know, to understand, and to have confidence in Jesus' unrestricted love for God, 
The love of Christ also includes Jesus Christ's love for God. How would you like to have Jesus Christ's love for God? It includes Jesus' love for all human beings, not some, all human beings, and for me. That's me and you, as well as the objects of my personal love and yours, our family, our friends, our close associates, etc. And so, it is also to, to have, on top of that, the experience of loving Jesus Christ, an experience which also surpasses anything I could have ever known on my own. This experience, and it is an experience, is what Paul spoke of when he said that, quote, the love of Christ so took him over that he came to the conclusion that since Christ died for all, then all died. And that from now on, or from that moment on, Paul would never know think of, judge, or register anyone after the flesh again, ever. That is, he would never know anyone again in terms of this worldly standards or this aeonic categories. So, to be controlled by the love of Christ is actually to love with Christ's Love, which led him to offer himself for all human beings as a sacrifice by which he removed their sins, our sins. So I take Bernard Lonergan's phrase, God's gift of his love, just exactly said that way, God's gift of his love. I take that to mean God's gift of his own love to us, which includes our love for him as a gift, as well as the mutual love for the persons of the triune God. What makes you think you could just love God unless God's own love was a gift to you? And that doesn't mean your will isn't involved, you don't have a choice and all the rest of it. It means that you love God as a gift of God's love. God loves himself in the sense of a divine self-esteem and God loves the three persons of the triune God. There's a mutual relationship of love. And so God's gift of his love means God's gift of his own love to us, which includes our love for him, as well as the mutual love for the persons of the triune God for us and for all of humanity as well as even for all of creation. And so, these things obviously have to be fanned out. There, there deserves to be a Christology in a systematic theology for the 21st century in which these things need to be unfurled, fanned out, expanded upon, amplified. But, next gear, second gear. I have come to view the faith of Christ. Pistios Jesu Christu, for example, in Galatians 3.22, where the phrase is used notably. I have come to, re to view the faith of Jesus Christ to refer in some, if not in many cases, many instances, we'll say, in the New Testament, to refer to both Jesus' faith faithfulness and fidelity and to our participation in his faith, fidelity, and faithfulness. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a fine and close division here. Although we have been saved by Jesus Christ's faith, fidelity, and faithfulness alone, and not of ourselves, not that 
of ourselves. There's a lot of things circulating around today that say that we're saved by our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We're saved by, I'll tell you what we're saved by, Jesus' allegiance to the Father. We're saved by our faithfulness. No, we're saved by Jesus Christ's faithfulness. But we experience this soteria, this experience of salvation by a participation in his faithfulness, fidelity, allegiance, whatever you want to call it, to God. And so again, although we have been saved and are being saved and will be for eternally saved by Jesus Christ's faith, fidelity, and faithfulness alone and not that of ourselves in Ephesians 2.8, we nevertheless may experience that salvation even now, that state of soteria, by a participation with or in his faith, fidelity, and faithfulness. So this gives the ostensible thesis verse of Romans, that is Romans 1.17, and I think it's right to call that the main verse or the thesis verse of Romans, which is, involves a quote of Habakkuk 2.4. It gives Romans 1.17 and therefore all of Romans, a rich and textured meaning. It says the righteous one, with a Christological interpretation, that means Jesus. The righteous one, Jesus, will live by faithfulness. The faithfulness by which Jesus lives is both the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness in which Jesus participates in the faithfulness of God. I'll say that again. By the, the faithfulness by which Jesus lives right now in resurrection is the faithfulness of God in which Jesus participated as a man, as the man, Christ Jesus. As a result and a reward, we could say, yes, we can use that word, as a result and as a reward for his own faithfulness, or Jesus' own faithful obedience to God who sent him into the world, he was raised from the dead to live forevermore and never die again. Romans 6, 9 to 10, Revelation 1, 18. Put those two together and you could write a doctoral thesis. However, not only does Jesus live as a reward for his own faithfulness, we live because he lives. Because I live, you will live also. In John 14, 19, in Christ, all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So we live because of his faithfulness. We could say we have eternal life or everlasting life as the reward for Jesus' faithfulness. Now hang on because we're going to see how faithfulness and obedience are synonyms and belong together. Just like in Hebrews we'll see that disobedience and unfaithfulness are the same concept. So then... In Christ, we live because of his faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Paul said it in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I live by the faith of the Son of God in this flesh, in my flesh, the life that I live in my flesh right now. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. And we could say within the faithfulness or as a participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20. Our choice to participate in Jesus' faith, fidelity, and faithfulness and to persevere in it with the perseverance of Jesus, Revelation 1.9, is our decision, our decision, by a will or volition that has been liberated 
by the Holy Spirit. So we couldn't have been saved forever by our own will. A lot of people wouldn't choose that, and so they'd perish forever and ever. So we are saved by Jesus' free will decision to go to the cross and bear our sins. But now that we have been saved and liberated, our will can be liberated to choose to live in participation with his faithfulness and therefore experience that condition called soteria, salvation in time, right now in these mortal bodies. Again, these things need to be amplified, explained, fanned out, explicated in what should become a systematic theology for the 21st century. But we're not doing that right now. As Jesus, persevering, faithful obedience led him through suffering to glory and honor, so our willing participation in Jesus' faith, fidelity, and faithfulness will lead us to glory and honor and reward. Now, here's where exhortation comes in. And in homage to the PT who preached Hebrews, I'll keep on alternating between exposition and exhortation. Here's some exhortation, and it's brief, but it's only painful for a second. When I think of the alternative of choosing to participate in Jesus' fidelity, that is, to become faithless, well, guess what? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about the alternative. But I will say this. I do know that to depart from the living God with an evil heart, and that means an evil will as well as an evil intention, of unbelief in Hebrews 3.12 will result in exclusion from eschatological blessings. And... I know that our continued confidence, on the other hand, when supplemented by perseverance, results in a great reward. One of the central exhortations in Hebrews, climactic ones, comes in Hebrews 10.35. Don't throw away your confidence, which carries, what? A great reward which results in a great reward. For you have need of the supplement of perseverance, so that after you have accomplished the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And what was promised is extraordinarily and untold blessings in future worlds, where Paul Powell stepped into this morning, stepped out of this body, out of this age, into future world where angels worship his Savior, and where he joins in with the triumph and the chorus of the skies. So, I hasn't seen nor ear heard, nor has it ever been imagined about the things that God has prepared in the eschatological age for those who love him. So I know that our continued confidence, when supplemented by perseverance, results in a great reward. What was Moses' motivation? He had respect for the reward. That's why he endured 40 years of the kind of abuse that we know our leader in this country has been enduring. You think that's tough. Moses endured it for 40 years. Abuse. Why? Because he had respect for the reward that was coming. I know that God remains faithful. And Jesus remains faithful even if I may choose to be faithless. I know that. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. I know that very well. But I also know that perseverance in his faithfulness leads to reigning, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, together with him in future world, as well as in this world in some measure. 2 Timothy 2.12, Romans 5.17. And what reigning together with Christ means, 
challenges my imagination beyond its capabilities. I don't want to lose and be excluded from certain eschatological blessings that boggle the imagination and exceed the capabilities of my imagination. I don't want that. So I choose in my utter inadequacy to trust in the Lord and to continue in participation with his faithfulness in this life. In any case, here we are. Look at Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of what we acknowledge as ultimate reality, Jesus, who was faithful to the one who appointed him. So, I'm going to go into gear three here. Having done an exhortation in homage to the PT who preached Hebrews, let me once again alternate to exposition. We're entirely concerned here with the faithfulness of Jesus in Hebrews 3.2. Moreover, we are concerned with his faithfulness being entirely to the one who appointed him. That one is God the Father, simply called God in Hebrews 1.1. The one, God, who appointed Jesus as the apostle and archpriest of our confession is God who spoke with decisive finality in a son in these last days. In Hebrews 1.2, the very same one. He is God who made the universe through his son. God is the one God who appointed Jesus to a mission, divine mission one. Jesus was faithful to him, faithful to God in the accomplishment of that mission. So throughout this passage, I hope you're still hearing, maybe it's a faint echo, maybe it's a loud one, but we still are hearing the echo of 1 Samuel 2.35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And everything that is in my heart, he will do. Notice how elegantly the declaration, everything that is in my heart, he will do, corresponds with Jesus, who was faithful to the one who appointed him. Faithfulness and obedience go together here and throughout Hebrews, as well as throughout the scripture in total, really. Now we have to ask, Fourth gear, just what was everything that is in God's heart? Just what was everything that was in God's heart in 1 Samuel 2.35? Or we could say, what was it that Jesus did that fulfilled everything that was in God's heart? Well, the first thing we can say in answer to that question is that in Hebrews 10.7, Jesus, the Son, says to God, his father, look, I've come to do your will, O God. We could say to do everything that's in your heart, O God. Now we have to ask, well, what was God's will? We already know that Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, so we must conclude by that that Jesus did God's will completely. Now, I looked at many routes we could take here to get to the same destination. There are many routes we could take here in order to get to our answer and the quest for an answer to the questions I just asked. What is that will? But the one I'm choosing for the moment is, and this is a discipline in studying. I see so many routes I could take to get to an answer, and they're all very intriguing and all sometimes beautiful. But I say, well, i got to pick this one. i got to pick one. I pick this one. And it's from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It seems that the so-called pastoral 
epistles. Notice that word pastor, pastoral epistles. That's first and second Timothy and Titus. Have invaluable importance for interpreting the intent of the pastor who wrote Hebrews. In fact, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are most important for their role in interpreting the New Testament and passages like Romans and passages and books like Hebrews or sermons like Hebrews. In 1st Timothy 2, 3, and 4, we learn that, quote, God our Savior wills that all humanity be saved. So if you're going to do all that's in God's heart, and fulfill everything that's in his heart and his will, it's going to have to be something with regard to the salvation of human beings. So God's will must be said to be a saving will when it comes to humanity. And because Jesus became humanity, then we got to realize that there's something to do with humanity and God's will. So God's will is a saving will or an intention to save even as we've learned that it is a summing up will, a will to sum up everything in Christ in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. We must also conclude that God's will is a universally saving will, universally saving will, which is the divine intention that all of humanity be saved and that all things be summed up through a reconciliation in him. So our quest for an answer gets a little bump here because now we can say, and by bump I mean boost, we get a boost here because now we can say that, quote, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him means that Jesus was obedient to God's universally saving will. That was and is what is in God's heart. And that's 1 Samuel or 1 Reigns 2.35, which is what's in his heart, the salvation of all of humanity, of every human being without exception. Jesus was faithful, meaning that Jesus was obedient to the Father's will and faithful to him who appointed him, therefore. So let me say again that we came to Hebrews by a certain route through Romans. So we're backing up a little bit here. For example, in Romans we discovered that the righteous one, Romans 1.17, CF, confer with Habakkuk 2.4, lived in resurrection as a reward for his faithfulness unto death, and that that is Jesus. Isaiah 53, 11, Acts 22, 14, 1 Peter 3, 18, 1 John 2, 1 to 2, and Philippians 2, 8. All of these refer in one way or another to Jesus Christ as the righteous one in his act of obedience unto death. And that because of Jesus' faithfulness, not only he himself, but all of humanity will live with that same incorruptible life in resurrection. So we can say that our justification slash salvation is the reward of Jesus' faithfulness, which is equivalent to saying that we are saved by Jesus' obedience. In Romans, we learn that Jesus was justified. Jesus was justified on account of his own faithfulness in Romans 3.26. That he who died was justified by a divine act by which he was raised from the dead. Romans 3.26 connected with Romans 4.25. Connected with Romans 6.7. Connected with Romans 8, 33, and 34. We also learned in reading Romans with the light of the USSJC shining on it that all human beings over the course of all time were justified in his justification and by his faithful death. 
that was followed by his resurrection from the dead. For he was delivered up for our sins, our trespasses, and raised up for our justification. Romans 4.25, connected with 5.18, of course. This was made explicitly clear, in fact, in Romans 5.18, where Paul says, by the authority that God gave to him as an apostle, quote, so then as through one sin came condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people. And again in Romans 5.19, you can't take 5.19 away from 5.18 or 5.18 away from 5.19 because they are a distich. You've got to read them together. In Romans 5.19, Paul wrote, For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many... That is all, because many equals all, and all equals many in Romans 5, 18 to 19, as well as in the juxtaposition of Mark 10, 45, Matthew 20, 28, Matthew 26, 28, and 1 Timothy 2, 6. Many equals all. And so, notice that Jesus' obedience in 5, 19 of Romans, also known as Jesus' faithfulness to the one who appointed him, resulted in many being constituted as righteous or all receiving justifying life. Please notice further that the many of Romans 5.19 is the all of Romans 5.18, a fact further attested by 1 Timothy 2.6, where it says that the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and humanity, gave his life as a ransom for all. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He was speaking of himself as the righteous servant in Isaiah 53, 11, whose righteous act would lead to the justification of many. Just as, again, in Mark 14, Mark 15, 45, along with Matthew 20, 28, we'll emphasize Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He meant all. And again, right in the blood groove, when he said, this is my blood of the covenant as he instituted the Eucharist, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus meant for all. Because again, in 1 Timothy 2, 6 and its interpretive power, it says he gave his life as a ransom for all. So when Jesus said many, he was using a very gentle understatement for all. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for all. All, for the forgiveness of the sins of all. So his blood was shed for all. Just as 1 John 2, 1 to 2 says, Jesus is the expiate, Jesus the righteous one, is the expiation, propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says the love of God, speaking of the love of God, is revealed most pointedly in, quote, God sending his one and only son into the world to be the propitiation, expiation for our sins so that we might live, we may live through him. We could better say it, we would live through him. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's love. That's what 1 John 3.16 says. 1 John 3.16. Jesus laid his life down for us. That's love. Guess what it is? It's the love of Christ. In fact, that was Jesus' act of faithful obedience to the Father's universally saving will. And at the same time, the faithful fulfillment of that will by Jesus, the apostle and archpriest of our bold confession. Because he laid down his life for us, John says, we ought to lay our lives down 
for the many brothers and sisters whom he's calling into glory. Now, many people have interpreted that as a moral ought, they call it, O-U-G-H-T, a moral ought. We ought to do that because he laid his life down. It's not a moral ought. Or we'll say this, it's not only a moral ought. What it is is the inevitable outcome when the love of Christ gets complete control of us. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you ought to lay your life down like you have the capacity to do such a thing. It says he laid his life down for us. We ought also to lay our lives down for him means the inevitable result of the love of Christ that laid its life down for you, when it gets total control of you, you will lay down your lives for the many brothers and sisters who are being called into glory, which means you'll lay down your lives for the brethren, as it says. So it's not a moral ought. It's an inevitable outcome of the love of Christ totally grabbing hold of you. Fifth gear, final gear. Final paragraph. As the apostle of our confession, Jesus is the sir, single inclusive representative of all of humanity. As the archpriest of our confession, he accomplished the expiation or the putting away not only of our sins, but of sin itself. Sinfulness itself, we could even say in Hebrews 9.26. So he accomplished propitiation by performing the reality of that which the Levitical high priests only symbolically accomplished once a year on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, when they sprinkled the blood of the holocausted lamb before and against the mercy seat in the earthly Holy of Holies. What the archpriests of the old order accomplished metaphorically, Jesus accomplished in reality through his own blood. Consequently, the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10.19 and 13.12, is a synonym of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the obedience of Jesus to the one who appointed and sent him. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, meaning he did all that was in the heart of God the Father who appointed him. And that means he saved all of mankind. All that remains in 1 Timothy 2.4, it's written, as well as Ephesians 4.13, is for all of us to come to the epinosis knowledge of the Son of God, which is the knowledge of the truth and reality that is Jesus, the Son of the living God. So, Father, what remains is that many will come to the knowledge of the truth as it's embodied in Jesus. May that be the case with hundreds, with thousands, even with millions in the years to come in our history, not only in the United States, but in this world. And in this political season, Father, we ask one thing. We ask that you will raise up leaders who will serve our nation in a way that will preserve life and freedom. That's all we ask. Our confidence isn't in princes or presidents, senators, congressmen, or any kind of representatives in the human realm. Our confidence is in you through Jesus Christ for our nation. May our confidence reside there forever. But we do ask in an election year, that you will allow for the raising up of those whose interest is toward not themselves, but the well-being of our nation, its freedom, its life, the preservation of its rights. And I may ask also boldly, Father, that you will remove from places and positions of authority and public service those who are not minded to preserve freedom liberty, and life. We ask this, and we place this solemn request before your throne of grace today, taking it very seriously, very solemnly, as priests in your house, presenting this petition to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only preserves our life and preserves our freedom, but gained it 
for us eternally through his obedience and faithfulness. Amen.